I, I, took, uh, I took my boys to uh, the tennis yesterday and, um, over uh, at Wimbledon Tennis Club. And uh, I caught the sun a bit, unfortunately, and um, so did my boys. But despite the privileges of going across to the tennis uh, courts, and uh, we went to centre court, and then went to court one and watched Serena Williams. You might have seen this on TV, we're right above uh, the, uh, the little sign where it shows how quick you're, the, the, you know, beside the trainers and all that kind of stuff. And very exciting, we've got these best seats in the house. And then I took them off to the stewards' lounge and we saw Rafael Nadal and and um, Federer and all these other companies. my boys just, uh, they thought nothing about this whatsoever they wanted to sit in one place for about 30 seconds and then just move on Daddy, can we go to the museum can we go to the, the shop can we go and have some strawberries can they do anything apart from watch tennis <laughs> the best part of the day though I think for all my boys uh, for both my boys was you know when the, the players <clears throat> they contend a shot and now on the show courts, they, they, um, they, the, the umpire says, yes, so-and-so has contended the shot. And suddenly all the, all the crowd are going, they start the whole sort of slow clapping business. And it sort of builds up. And on the screen, you see the ball come down, Hawkeye. And it comes down, is it going to be in or is it going to be out? And Zachary, at this point, has sort of stood on his chair, going, yes, it's going to be in, it's going to be in. It's going, oh, no. <laughs> and... And then his big question is, why do they not do that all the time? That's the most fun part of the day. <laughs> so anyway. So the question, the question in their mind, and it, with the whole process of Hawkeye, that thing is, are they in or are they going to be out? Are they in or are they out? Uh, I, I guess it's one of those questions uh, that, that dominates all of us to some degree and, and our society. We want to be in, don't we? And we want to be in with the crowd, we want to be in fashion, in love, in the black maybe, in our bank accounts. To be out suggests to be ostracised to some extent, to be isolated or without something. We've probably mocked our parents at various stages in our life, where we got to in our lives, we do, because of their lack of individualism. Have you done this? You know, they, sort of, they buy things in order to keep up with the local kind of fraternity of friends. So they, they buy a new car because so-and-so got that car and they buy new curtains because that's the thing that all their friends are buying and they even get gardening tools to match and sort of keep up with everyone else. Well, maybe that's just my parents. I, I, I pity them sometimes because they can't be themselves. But deep down, I guess, they are just like all the rest of us. We love to fit in, don't we? Are you in or are you out? Now, the answer to this question at certain times in our lives will actually determine our futures, won't we? Think back if we look to our grades at school, um, as we progress through university uh, and maybe into, into jobs that you're applying for. It's that question in your mind, am I in or am I out? Same happens if you, if you remember kind of, if you played sport at all. You know? I remember the team sheet being put up at school or in a club. You, know, and you worked out which team you're in. Are you in that team or are you out of that team? Are you in or are you out? And at present, you may be struggling off the responsibility of answering that question. That is, you don't work that hard in life because you don't want to progress too much because you don't think it makes that much difference, the amount of work that you do. And the world affirms that kind of laziness and that apathy, both in relationships and work sometimes, because that's what a pluralistic society will do. There are no absolutes. So what you'll hear from friends, if, if things don't work, it's like, oh, you're all right. You know, that wasn't, wasn't so bad. You'll do okay in the end. 
big slap on the back. But in reality, the responsibility must lay on our shoulders. See, apathy and laziness will lead to being out. Out of the job that your potential could bring. Out of perhaps the relationship that could bring so much joy. And of course, apathy is not the only issue here, but it is becoming more of a prevalent issue, especially amongst young men. Are you in or are you out? Now, the question for being, of being in is for many of us a kind of daily routine, a kind of self-interrogation that determines our passage in this life. Are we, if we're in, then we'll be secure that day. We'll, we'll feel confident. We'll be approachable. And if we're out, then we'll lack that self-esteem. We'll feel timid and shy and so on. That seems to be the way of our culture. But on one day in history, this question will ring true and more significantly and more seriously than ever before, there will be no avoiding it. You will know on that day in history, the last day in history, the answer to this question. You will know whether you are in or whether you are out. The answer will not be referring to whether you've got in a team or you've got in a job or you're in a relationship or in fashion or whatever it may be. No, on that day you will know whether you are in God's good eternal kingdom or you will know whether you are excluded from God's good eternal kingdom. You will know you are out. Are you in or are you out? Now the letter to the church in Sardis is a a warning from Jesus to to people who were ignoring to engage with this, this question. Coaxing along in life. They were not concerned for their eternal lives, it seems, but merely for the now and what they could get away with. Apathy and laziness and reliance on reputation was obscuring their ability to overcome. That phrase which keeps coming up in each of these letters. That is to overcome the struggles and strains of this life and being a Christian, being in Christ and and getting to the end goal. Such was their compromise that The warning from Jesus, we're reaching, if you like, a rock-bottom low here in these seven letters. It's stronger than ever. They were in jeopardy of of being out. Now, Sardis was an extraordinarily wealthy city. It It was built on the junction of five roads, convergence of five roads coming together, on a hill that was deemed throughout antiquity as utterly impregnable from attack. But apathy and laziness epitomised the whole city of Sardis. Uh, Such that on two occasions in their history, when all the guards were asleep in this wonderful city, the city was sacked. Now the church in Sardis had not suffered actually like many of the other churches that we've been hearing about uh, in these letters. There There was little or no persecution But the temptation, isn't it, for the sheltered, of which all of Sardis people felt sheltered, protected, safe. The the temptation of anyone who feels sheltered in life is to take things easy. And this is exactly what had happened in the church. They become slack. The temptation of the sheltered is always to take the easy option. I wonder whether that applies to you and me. You see, I don't face a gun in my head for my relationship in Christ. I don't face a beating for telling someone about about the Lord Jesus as I walk down the streets of Earlsfield. 
Well, you see, Jesus now, is he writing this letter to, the, to an apathetic church who had an easy, sheltered life? So I think it kind of applies to us a little bit. I don't know, you work it out. Jesus, as always, introduces each letter with a description of himself that comes from chapter 1, doesn't it? There's all those phrases just come out. Each give you an indicator, an, an attribute of what he is. Uh, and this is no exception. At this time, he shows himself as a divine king. Look at verse 1, it shows it there. To the angel, that is the leader of the church, in Sardis write, these are the words of Jesus, of him, sorry, um, who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. There's the introduction of Jesus himself to launch off who's writing this letter, the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Uh, literally, this describes Jesus as the one who holds the sevenfold spirit of God. Seven completeness, the number means something. Jesus gives, if you like, um, the complete and perfect spirit of God to God's people, demonstrating that he is the one in control, for he is the giver of the spirit. It is his spirit. Control is also demonstrated in that other introduction. He holds the seven stars. Going back to chapter 1, verse 16, that comes from. The seven stars refer to the angels of the seven churches. And whatever their role of guardianship of the churches is, what Jesus wants his listeners and you and I to hear is that above all, he is the one in control. He's above all, whether spiritual or physical, human or whatever it may be. Even above the angels, he's the sovereign one. So Jesus' control and sovereignty uh, is once again apparent in that slightly scary phrase. I'm going to point it out every week because I think we need to hear it. Look what he says, I know your deeds. It's kind of one of those haunting phrases, isn't it? Jesus knew all of the deeds, all the minds and the hearts of the people inside us, just as he knows each one of us. Everything we've ever thought said and done. But, but like all the letters, after Jesus' introduction of himself, there comes, well, normally, there comes some kind of praise, doesn't there? Oh, you do this, and then you get a but. But here, well, it's pretty condemning. Let's go to verse 1. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Reputations are all too easy to rely upon, aren't they? And we all want a good one, don't we? Whether at work, in family, wherever it may be. Cyrus, the Roman poet, wrote in 100 BC, a good reputation is more valuable than money. It's just common wisdom. And if you look through the wisdom literature in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and so on, reputation is such a key figure, a key part of the wisdom literature. Socrates, a bit later, wrote, regard your good name as the richest jewel you can possibly be possessed of. I mean, let's just jump forward, just to think that this is a contemporary thing. I'll go to the 18th century to begin with. Benjamin Franklin, glass, china, reputation, are easily cracked and never well mended. Oh, you can go to all sorts. Reputation is such a big thing in our lives today. Just look at Ryan Giggs. Two years ago, Sports Personality of the Year. Heralded as the great family man, the great giver to the community of sport, the clean sportsman. You know the stories. That's why spin doctors are so wealthy today, I guess, and why super injunctions are so popular. Now, talking about Sardis here, 
Although their reputation was gleaming, they were, in fact, Jesus perceives that they were dead. It is one of the most damning indictments of any church in the whole of the New Testament, many theologians believe. And just as the people of Sardis were living off former glory because of their great city, so the same attitude had seemingly infected the church. Oh, the, the church may have been considered alive, vibrant. They're the church to be at. Local churches may have even respected it. They, Sardis, probably put on conferences where other church ministers came to them to, to learn from their methodology and how they taught the Bible. And They probably had great home groups. They're probably the, the leading figures in how to do home groups. and Everyone would have loved to aspire to be like them. But Jesus sees right through it and sees that they are dead. Not completely. But you see, the writer uses exaggeration, hence why this is warning literature. Um, He uses exaggeration to convey the precarious position the members of the church in Sardis were in. That is, in the congregation of Sardis, there were many who were spiritually in imminent danger of genuine and eternal death. Now don't forget that in any church, including Christchurch Hillsford here, um, there are people here that fit into all different categories in their relationship with God. Now, some people here, I guess, tonight will have come just because they're, they're intrigued. Their, their friends are here and they wanted to come along and hear. Um, but actively, you're resistant to God in your heart. You're unbelieving of him. It's great that you're here, by the way. But that may be you. Now, there are those of us who perhaps come to church occasionally. You seem it's the right thing to do. It, you know, that's the way you've been brought up. It's a morally upright thing. But you know nothing of personal relationship with God. Other of us, others, people here might, uh, you may be quite regular. You may go to home group. You might get really stuck in with various things. But in your apathy, you've not been willing to engage in a trusting relationship with God. There's an aspect of your life which you say, I don't want that to come under the Lordship of Christ. I guess there will be another category, won't there, of, of guys of you here, many of you here, we just, you are absolutely, let's say, on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's joy in your heart as you read his word. You, you long to pray to him. There's all sorts of categories of people within the visible church. Look around, because you can't tell the difference between each of those categories. But Jesus can. He knows our deeds. And though by reputation we may be able to fool anyone, we can't fool the Lord Jesus, whether we live with him as Lord of our lives or whether we ignore him. And the emphatic warning to all in this letter is, uh, look at it in verse 2. It just says, wake up. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So to our first point, first main point, is simply just wake up. You kind of want to shout it, but I'm not a shouter, so there we go. Wake up. Literally it means be watchful. And we all need to hear that, don't we? Lack of vigilance can be very costly sometimes. It was very costly for the city of Sardis when it was sacked. All the soldiers lay arrogantly asleep. This city is impenetrable. Wham! No, it's not. 
now the church in seeing what had happened to the city are being warned by Jesus here that they too will suffer the same fate but eternally if they do not heed these warnings. Hear what Jesus says. There's a few warnings here. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. You see that there in verse 2, don't you? What he's saying is that all is not lost here. You're in a bad place, but all is not lost. What remains in the church, that ember of relationship with God, you see, needs to be fanned into flames. That's not to put it too strongly, if you like. And if you think you are a Christian by, I know, like virtue of going to church occasionally, of being brought up in a kind of Christian household, a Christian family, of being a morally upright person in comparison to X, Y and Z, or because of your nationality, then I want to warn you, you are mistaken and you are spiritually dead before God. But if you once knew the joy of relationship with God, but now a million miles away from him, be warned, that ember could, could soon be snuffed out. Strengthen what is about to die, the warning is. They're the words of Jesus, not me. Strengthen what is about to die. Remember I, I said the church in Sardis has not been um, persecuted like the, the other churches of Pergamum and Ephesus and Thyatira. But you've got to ask a question the, the kind of behind that. Why would the Roman and Jewish authorities leave these guys alone? Well, Jesus exposes that in verse 2, doesn't he? I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. The church in Sardis, um, like many of us, I guess, and I look around the church in this country, and I kind of hang my head in shame sometimes, as I do myself. I guess it's just mediocrity. Now, why do we not get the persecution that other Christians around the world get? I'm not a masochist yet, I'm not looking for it. But I think we have to ask the question. I guess maybe it's because, like the church in Sardis, we keep our mouths shut. We don't tell others about Jesus. And we shroud that mediocrity, don't we? In a, in a veneer. We use those excuses like, oh, it's politically not savvy at that moment. Uh, I, I'm paid to work in my workplace. So you are, of course, that's right. But what about the drinks after work that you sometimes go to? Oh, we, we, we like to sort of use the excuse of, uh, I'm more emotionally intelligent now. And that, therefore, I'm looking for the right time still. Uh, I guess other excuses uh, are like this. Some of us may think we're just too innocuous to our friends, too harmless to be of any interest to them. So we lack offence. But our deeds, Jesus says, are not complete in the sight of God. That is, I, I guess we can talk a really good game amongst Christians, amongst our friends. Oh, we'll get to the end of a sermon, we can dissect it uh, in the most amazing way. We can look very intelligent and very godly as we do it. And we'll go to a Bible study and we can bring a passage apart in the most, uh, you know, it's like a comprehension in English. But that just shows you're good at English. Incomplete deeds before God. I don't know if I'm alone in this. And maybe you just need to ask the question yourself. Let's move on, verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. So he says, wake up. He says, strengthen what is about to die because 
your deeds. He's mentioned those. And now he's saying, remember what you've heard. Jesus says, you've got to recall to your minds what you know. And some of us here, as I guess the people inside us, were so privileged to have grown up and been involved in Christian families and great churches. But perhaps you've ignored the faith that has been proclaimed to you week on week, year on year. And Jesus is saying, wake up. Recall that saving message which you've heard again and again and again. Because it's a message that requires you to change. To have activity uh, that responds to it. For Christians here in Earlsford in 2011, the message is the same. Guys, we need to wake up some of us. Live a life of continuing activity for the Lord Jesus. Recalling the passion that we once had to share the gospel and the message of that gospel. And we need to do that again. Live it again. Because activity is, n- is no breeding ground for apathy. Rather, it's a sure sign of saving faith. So remember, recall what you have received and heard. Obey it and now repent. So finally, obey it and repent in verse 3. The process, that process of obedience and repentance seems so simple in theory, doesn't it? I can do that. Obedience, doing what I've been told. Repentance, turning from my old ways and following Jesus. But I guess, like many of us, obedience and repentance tends to irritate us, constrain us, so we think. We naturally want to do things our own way, in our own time, according to our rules. And those feelings don't change with age, with marital status, or any other factor in our lives. It's just our sinful nature. We want to rule our own lives, and it grates us when anyone else tries to say otherwise. And the message about Jesus and relationship with him is at first, at first glance a kind of moratorium on fun, isn't it? No more fun for you if you become a Christian. It's an advertiser's nightmare, isn't it? Christianity hardly offers any kind of immediate hedonistic titillation. It's just, it's just a stop the fun now, <clears throat> it seems. The Christian life, in that sense, is hard to sell to anyone. But that's the point. It's not on sale. It's a gift. And it's free. See, repentance doesn't cost financially before God. Of course there are costs elsewhere. Obedience to God's ways doesn't cost financially. But what it brings us, the reward of life now, with purpose and great joy, but the life to come is beyond belief. So what does Jesus say? He says, obey and repent. Turn around and look to Jesus. Wake up. The life now is awesome. The life to come is beyond anything. Verse 3, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know what time I will come to you. And here's the warning, isn't it? He will come. The tense of the word wake up in the original conveys real urgency. When King Cyrus attacked the city in uh, 549 BC and when Antichius the Great did the same in Sardis in 219 BC, history says, if you look back into all the the antiquity writings, it, it says they came to Sardis. 
And Jesus picks up those phrases and says, Now I come to you. I will come to you. And the sentiment of that coming is judgment. And it's of destruction. It speaks of a, perhaps another temporal judgment, but it points towards, of course, the eternal judgment that's to come. For one day, any time from now, Jesus will come again to this world. And everything that God has promised of his son, the Lord Jesus, has been fulfilled apart from that one thing. And you'd have to be very confident, wouldn't you? Or just a bit foolhardy to think that this last promise will not be fulfilled. Jesus will come one day in judgment. His judgment will be completely fair. So if you've ignored God for all of your life, he will ignore you in all of his goodness. And the question is, are you ready for that? Now he will come like a thief that is unannounced. You will not know the time, but you will know that when he you will know the time when he has come. Because either all goodness will have gone, or all pain and suffering will have gone. With any warning in the Bible though, there generally comes comfort because God is a God of judgment. Yes, he is, but he's also a God of love and mercy. And in each of these letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, now Turkey, the comfort comes in, in, the uh, in a description of the one who remains faithful to the Lord, despite everything. That is, the one who overcomes. That's the one you want to be, by the way, if you haven't got that already. And the comfort comes in, in, in the form of what is on offer to the people who remain faithful. And we see that once again, we see it every week. And this week I think it's pretty remarkable. So to our second point, to the one who overcomes. Now to overcome, just to reiterate, it's the one who struggles to defeat all the obstacles of this life. And when Jesus speaks of overcoming, he speaks of, let's just put it contemporary, living in London without any compromise to your faith. He speaks of living in relationship with him without giving up at all. Of course we're going to get things wrong. Uh, none of us here will ever be so stupid to say we're, we're perfect and that living the Christian life is easy. We struggle and we long to let go on occasions. But there is more to be lost than there is to be gained. And if you overcome, that is if you stick it out, if you remain faithful to Christ, which brings such joy now and such purpose now, look what is in store for tomorrow. Firstly, we see in verse 4, people will be, will be dressed in white will be dressed in white. It's like the white of a bride's dresses, dress symbolizes, symbolizes purity, doesn't it? So too will those who remain pure before God be dressed in the purity of Jesus Christ. Verse 4 shows that there are only a few people in the church of Sardis who are living like this and with this in mind. They live in recognition of what Jesus has done for each of them. That is, they do not compromise. They didn't once go to church and have a relationship with God and then ignore him because city life, London life, became a bit too appealing for them. No, these people have... No, they haven't soiled their clothes, to use that, that imagery there. They live for God. Uh, they do their best every day. Of course they mess up, you know, we all do, but they're not perfect, but they struggle to overcome the enticements that life brings and that take us from God. And if we overcome, remain faithful to Christ, 
we will be like them. That is, dressed in white. It it describes how Christians are clothed there in in Jesus' perfect life. For what has happened, we know it so well, don't we? But it's good to reiterate it with this brilliant illustration. It's good to understand what happens at the cross. And that is, Jesus puts on our dirty clothes. Uh, our dirty lives. All of our sin is placed on him on the cross. And his perfectly righteous life is put on us if we put our faith in him. It is counted as ours at judgment. We stand clothed, dressed in white robes of perfection. It is such a great assurance, isn't it? And one that all Christians who engage in that joyful struggle of living for God enjoy. But you have to be warned here, don't you? If you're one of those people, like in Sardis, who um, perhaps have enjoyed a, a perceived relationship with God, you've come to church, you've done all of those things, but now you're, you're miles away from God. Or even if you're one, one of those people who've never even entertained a relationship with God, you will be dressed in your own clothes as you meet God at judgment. That is, you'll be dressed in your own life and you will meet a perfect and righteous judge face to face and you will look dirty and you'll be on your own at that point. Of course, at that point you'll be able to compare yourselves with others, won't you? And say, hey, my clothes are just just kind of off-white. I'm not as bad as X, Y and Z. You know, the murderers over there and all those kind of people. But God has a standard of utter perfection, of utter dazzling white robes. And that is what we need to be dressed in. The perfect robes, the perfect life of Jesus Christ. If we're to have any assurance at judgment, they're the clothes we need to be dressed in. And if you overcome, if you get through this amazing life with Christ now, committed in faith to God, you will be dressed in his righteousness. What comfort that is. Secondly, to the one who overcomes, their name will be in the book of life. Again, verse 5. I will never blot out his name from the book of life. And, and that's why we sort of say, you know, are you in it or are you out? Are you in or are you out? This is not meant to scare Rather, Jesus warns that when he returns to judge, we will all be taken to God and we will be sat, stood in front of the judgment seat of God. It's a picture taken here, which is later described in in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 to 15. I'm actually going to be looking at that passage at the end of July. And I would encourage you, if you have friends, especially friends, who are perhaps of a church background... Christians who have just drifted away a little bit. Friends who you know, know something of God. That will be a good opportunity for you to bring them. It will be challenging, but it will be a good opportunity. In that passage in Revelation 20, it seems that before God there will be two books. Certainly one is described in Revelation 20, verse uh, 14, I think it is. The book of life is described there. But there will be other books. It seems the book of Many theologians describe it as the book of deeds. And in those books, uh, the whole of our life will be mapped out. All of our thoughts, all of our, our words, our deeds, they'll be there, there in those book of deeds. It'll be 
on show for the judge to see and examine. The book of deeds will miss nothing. And God will fairly judge and all of us will fall short of his standards. But you see, for those of us who put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and asked him to be king of our lives, our names and our lives will not only be mapped out in these, these books with all of our lives in, but our names will also be in the book of life. And what will happen is something like this. Imagine this, it's apocalyptic language, so we're kind, of, we're kind of working out here very, very loosely. God will see that we've put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we struggle to maintain that, that joyful relationship with him. And he will look at us and he will see Jesus' perfection. And he will see that our sin needs punishing. But it's been dealt with on the cross. And what God will say to us, I guess, at judgment will be something like this. Come in. Yeah, I know your deeds are there. But Jesus has paid for them. And I'm, I'm a just God, so I'm not going to punish them twice. But your name's in the book of life. You're one of mine. So come in. It's worth the struggle, isn't it? It's worth waking up for. And if you're not in the book of life, if you have no relationship with God, if you've not woken up, if you like, Jesus is warning you now, as I am with these words, wake up and grab this lifeline. Are you in? Or are you out? If you are in the book of life, live like it. Wake up and live like those few in Sardis did, in a manner worthy of what Jesus has done for you. And if you're out of the book of life, look around you, because when Jesus comes or when you die, you are on your own. And God will judge, will judge you fairly, and he will withdraw his goodness from you. And the picture in Revelation 20, I'll look at it more in a few weeks' time, it's this horrifying picture of a lake of fire, but it, it is an inadequate picture of what those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour will face. The last assurance follows from the previous one, the end of verse 5. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. So to the one who overcomes, lastly, their name will be acknowledged before God. And Jesus will simply say to the before God and before the angels of judgment he's one of mine let him in your name will be acknowledged before God and I guess if there's anyone I want to acknowledge me to be on my side it is Jesus isn't it he is God he's the eternal all powerful and we've seen that on all the descriptions from Revelation 1 and when he puts his arms around you at judgment and says welcome home you will know that what you have gone through in this life has been absolutely worth it the one who overcomes will be acknowledged before God. You are one of mine, Jesus will say. Or words to that effect. So lastly, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you've got an ear, and I guess we all have, listen to Jesus. I implore you, listen to Jesus as he speaks through his Spirit and his Word into your hearts now. Please don't leave this building tonight without challenging yourself being honest with yourself. Are you in that book of life or are you out of that book of life? Are you dressed in those white robes of purity of the life of Christ or are you going to approach God at judgment with your own dirty life?
I can't sell you Christianity. I can't make it more palatable. But Jesus has made it possible to be with God for eternity. And I don't think it gets any better than that. I think that is the most palatable thing you will ever hear in your life. Jesus has died on a cross to take the punishment that your sin and my sin deserves. He has done everything and all he asks is for you to put your trust in him and to live for him with him being your Lord and King. Well, if we do that, we get amazing joy, satisfaction and purpose in life now. But the best thing is that when we die, we don't die. We just go to sleep. And that we rise to new life, perfect life with our King. Wake up. Perhaps for the first time tonight. Perhaps you once knew God and you've ignored him for a number of years. Wake up. Turn to God and ask him for his help. Because if he comes soon, and he might, you want to be in that book rather than out. So I ask one last time, are you in or are you out? Why don't we pray to finish? Just a moment of quiet to examine our own hearts. And now I'm going to pray a prayer. Really, as a prayer, if anyone wants to tonight, perhaps for the first time, or just to recommit their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. A prayer of just uh, asking God, saying we're sorry, asking for his forgiveness.